Tonight on the show, the ACT's criminal justice system in chaos after the Brittany Higgins, Bruce Learman trial wash-up. The Liberal Party comes out as a fully-fledged centre-left political party, making it clear it's no home for Conservatives, especially female ones. And Elon Musk's new Twitter CEO. She's a tough cookie. Will they get along? G'day and welcome to The Other Side Australia. This is the show that presents a different take on the news of the week, bringing you up to date for the weekend without the ideological extremism. I'm Damien Curry and welcome to this week's episode 206 of The Other Side Australia. First streaming Friday, May 19 on ADH TV. The world's biggest electric car company, Tesla, has held its shareholder meeting in Texas this week. CEO Elon Musk played down rumours that he might step down as CEO. Some investors were frustrated that Musk wasn't focused enough on his car company after he bought Twitter back in October. But it was an interview he did with finance news channel CNBC afterwards that really has people talking. Check this out. You know, do your tweets hurt the company? Are there Tesla owners who say, I don't agree with his political position because, and I know it because he shares so much of it. Or are there advertisers on Twitter that Linda Yaccarino will come and say, you gotta stop, man. Or, you know, I can't get these ads because of some of the things you tweet. You know, I'm reminded of uh, the, the, the scene in The Princess Bride, great movie, Great movie. Um, where he confronts the person who killed his father, and he says, offer me money, offer me power, I don't care. So you just don't care. You want to share what you have to say. I'll say what I want to say. And if, 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 uh, if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. Well, he's committed to the free speech thing. There's no doubt about that. He's basically telling Tesla shareholders, you don't like it? Tough. But they'd be wise to think twice before trying to move forward without him. Funnily enough, Musk has appointed the former advertising boss at CNBC's parent company, NBC Universal, as Twitter's new CEO, as he now steps back after performing what he called open heart surgery on the social media company. Linda Yaconaro will become the new Twitter CEO, while Elon will focus on products and tech at Twitter. Many of you in this room know me, and you know I pride myself on my work ethic, but buddy, I met my match. The Wall Street Journal's advertising editor, Susanna Varanka, says in a YouTube video that it'll be interesting to see how the two strong personalities work together. Following Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, advertisers exited big time from Twitter. They were really afraid that Elon would lift all restrictions and their ads would be appearing near unsafe content. That has basically kept a lot of them at bay and they have not returned. Linda Yagarena knows full well that this is an issue because she used to use this to her advantage when she was at NBCU. She would attack the digital channels for having content that was too controversial and hoping to make sure that brands would stick with big broadcast network for safety. So I suspect that she'll make sure that Twitter invests in new tools to keep brands away from unsafe content. 
The corporate dollars get everyone in the end, and this is why we need to support independent media and support the disruptors like Elon Musk when they come along, because they don't come along too often. The Australian Capital Territory's criminal justice system seems to be in chaos. The Director of Public Prosecutions has stepped aside. The Territory's greeny government won't give him a vote of confidence. The relationship between the police and the DPP is at rock bottom. It's a wild time in Canberra town. And all of this has been put starkly in the spotlight by the first seven days hearings of the inquiry into the whole system, following the aborting of the Brittany Higgins Bruce Lehrman rape trial last October. Now there's some really extraordinary stuff coming out of this inquiry that'll have implications for all of us all around the country. After the first seven days of sensational testimony, the ACT Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, appears to have been stood down. The ACT government says Mr Drumgold is on leave at his request. It's all going to make for some really interesting findings when the inquiry's final report gets handed down at the end of July. But the most important thing that you need to know about this story is that the ACT Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, the top legal officer that brings criminal cases on behalf of the public in the ACT, may have been trying to prevent a police report called the Mueller Report from being disclosed to Bruce Lerman's defence lawyers, as it normally would be and should be, because it contained police comments that would have been favourable to Mr Lerman's case. The Australian newspaper reported that Mr Drumgold said he might have unintentionally misled the ACT Supreme Court over an affidavit seeking to prevent the Mueller report being given to the defence team. The newspaper says Mr Drumgold acknowledged that he had claimed the Mueller report was privileged, that would mean that it didn't have to be shared with the defence team, without having seen it and without having checked it with Detective Superintendent Scott Mueller who wrote it. In doing so, lawyers argue, Mr Drumgold went against a basic duty of a prosecutor to disclose any relevant evidence, particularly matters adverse to their case, to the defence. Also in the witness box this week was Bruce Lerman's defence barrister, Stephen Wybrow, SC. And he accused Mr Drumgold of abandoning impartiality and aligning himself with Brittany Higgins. Mr Wybrow said he told police the decision to run a second possible trial against his client should not be made by Mr Drumgold. You may also remember that after the trial was aborted back in October, Shane Drumgold told the media that he believed he had a reasonable chance of convicting Bruce Lerman for the alleged rape of Ms Higgins, but wasn't going to proceed with another trial because of concerns for Ms Higgins' welfare. How would you like to be accused of a crime, have the trial at which you hope to prove your innocence and clear your name aborted, and then have the DPP tell the world that you probably did it? It doesn't sound like justice to me. And a lot of legal commentators at the time suggested that was a very inappropriate thing to say. Well, in the inquiry this week, Mr Wybrow, Mr Lerman's barrister, said that he thought it was an unnecessary thing to say, and he felt it was a pejorative stab at Bruce Lerman. He said Mr Drumgold was meant to act as an objective minister for justice and not a solicitor for Ms Higgins. Yet, when Mr Drumgold announced he was dropping the rape charge against Mr Wybrow's client, his speech conveyed that Mr Lerman was 
really guilty in his view. He also said he understood Mr Drumgold's concern for Ms Higgins' well-being and said he had similar concerns for Mr Lehrman's welfare. Other things that came out of the inquiry this week, Mr Drumgold was admonished by the head of the inquiry, Walter Sofronoff KC, for claims that he made last year that it was possible or even probable that political pressure was brought to bear on the police to suppress the prosecution of Mr Lehrman. Mr Sofronoff said, Mr Drumgold, for the Director of Prosecutions to say, I hold a suspicion that it's possible that a minister tried to get at the Commissioner to stop a prosecution is a pretty serious thing to say. Bruce Lehrman's barrister was also questioned about the poor relationship between the Australian Federal Police officers working on the case and Mr Drumgold and his office. Mr Wybrow was asked about a meeting that he had with one of the defect detectives that was working on the case, a detective Marcus Bowman, during the later stages of the trial. Did he tell you that he considered that Mr Lerman was innocent? That's what my recollection was. He didn't just say that he thought that a not guilty verdict was appropriate. He said that he thought that Mr Lerman was innocent, correct? Um, and then in the context of that conversation, he said to you that if the jury came back with a guilty verdict, that he would resign from the police force. Words to that effect is my recollection, yes. On Tuesday, Mr Wybrow said there had been a number of inconsistencies in the evidence of Ms Higgins. It's hard to think of any cases where there were so many things that the complainant had said which were able to be demonstrated to be wrong or inconsistent or sometimes said knowing that they were wrong but for a reason, he said. Next week, the police officers themselves will give evidence at the inquiry. Australia desperately needs a major sensible, conservative and classical liberal political party. We simply do not seem to have one right now. The Liberal Party of Australia has drawn a line in the sand this week, confirming what we've all witnessed in recent years. It seems to have shifted to become a centre-left party. There simply is very little that is centre-right or classically liberal and certainly not conservative about the Liberal Party of Australia anymore. It is a small L Liberal Party now in the American sense of the word liberal. The party of Menzies, sadly, appears to be no more. That is what the powers that be within the party want, despite, despite eight out of nine election losses in recent years. Those who seek to bring the party back to its traditional centre-right roots are now scorned, silenced or expelled. It's just not their party anymore. If you don't live in Victoria, you may still have heard something in the news this past week about a controversy concerning a Victorian State Member of Parliament by the name of Moira Deeming. Now, she's a Liberal Party member of Victoria's Upper House of Parliament, the Legislative Council. So for those outside Victoria and wondering why this matters for the Liberal Party nationally, nationally and for the country nationally, what is this latest drama all about? Well, it started back in March when Ms Deeming attended a pro-women's rights rally in Melbourne in opposition to transgender activists. Liberal MP Moira Deeming was at the Let Women Speak anti-trans rights rally when more than two dozen neo-Nazis joined the protest, performing the Hitler salute on the steps of Victoria's parliament. Now, the opposition leader wants her gone. Moira Deeming has had an association with people who organised the rally, along with her assistants, who have shared platforms with and viewpoints with people 
who promote Nazi views or sympathies. That's the new big strong Liberal Party state opposition leader in Victoria, John Pizzuto, boys and girls. And all of what he said there would be great if any of it were the slightest bit true. All Moira Redeeming did was make a speech at a Let Women Speak rally. It seems the Liberal Party don't want to let women speak. Same as the Labor Party and the Greens. They're all more concerned about not offending the latest woke thing. They all just conveniently ignore the fact that a pack of buffheads showing up and doing Nazi salutes actually hasn't got anything to do with Moira Redeeming or anyone else who was there supporting the women's rights group. Last time I looked, we were still about 30% a free country and you could still protest anti-establishment positions if you wanted to. But I guess not if you want to remain a Victorian Liberal MP. As for the men in black with the Hitler salutes back in March, there's still questions as to who they really were, as ADH's Fred Paul pointed out on his show this week. The media pounced on the opportunity to conflate the women's rights event with Nazism. In truth, the Nazis involved were pathetic losers in black shorts with shaved legs. But the coverage almost gave the impression that Melbourne was just a goose step away from reenacting the Nuremberg rallies of 1934. What on earth would be next? Armed stormtroopers shooting dissidents in the streets? Wouldn't that be an issue for the opposition to get its teeth into? Indeed. The star attraction and organiser of that rally was UK women's rights activist Posey Parker. Because she's an outspoken, controversial conservative in the UK, she's not allowed to have a voice in modern Australia either. Because, as all good Australians know, especially Victorians, all conservatives are far-right neo-Nazis. In a statement, Miss Deeming said none of the organisers were involved with neo-Nazis, and she condemned the actions of the masked men in black, who were later identified as neo-Nazis, and who she says gatecrashed the event. But that wasn't enough. The media got mad. And so did the Labor Party. Here's Victoria's Equality Minister, Harriet Shing, rousing on poor Mr Pesuto. Till the Nazis turned up, Mr Pesuto was happy to let this slide. He's very happy to say that our civilised debate is part of a modern Liberal Party, and yet he's not prepared to call out anti-trans statements. Anti-trans. Wanting women and girls to be able to have their own bathrooms and changing rooms and sports and rejecting the modern gender theory ideology made up by university social science departments in America apparently makes you transphobic. Another one of those words that the left has invented for us all to indulge in. Well, that's all just now a given, isn't it, for the really smart university educated lefties like Minister Shing? She's the equality minister, so she'll be marching around Melbourne on Dan Andrews' orders, handing out equality, whether you like it or not. Her version of equality, of course. No freedom for you. When did we start having equality ministers? It sounds like something from Harry Potter in 1984. Anyway, back to the new leader, and I use the term sceptically, of the parliamentary Liberal Party opposition in Victoria after its inexcusable loss to Dan Andrews at the election. The great statesman... John Pizzuto. In a party room meeting a week after the protest, Mr Pizzuto moved a motion to expel Moira Deeming from the party. I don't think they're friends. But Moira made a heartfelt speech 
in a closed door meeting that reportedly brought some of her colleagues to tears. So instead of expelling her, they thought, well, we'll just suspend her for nine months. Now here's where the former school teacher made her big mistake. She actually thought that that was a bit of a cowardly cop-out. She didn't like the idea that she was being tarred with the Nazi brush since, you know, she isn't one. And she stood up for herself. My God, I mean, clearly nobody told her the Liberal Party rules. Nobody stands up for anything in the Liberal Party. You can't stay in the Liberal Party if you do that. Oh well, she's new. Anyway, after three weeks of lying low at the party's request because there was a federal by-election on and being quiet and being the good team player that she ought to be, after that by-election was over, she decided to speak out on Peter Credlin's Sky News show. You said to me that you found the, um, the slur against you, this, this, this imputation that somehow you were a neo-Nazi type supporter, so offensive. Why was that? Uh, it was just such a shock because it was so obviously untrue. I could have family history, haven't you? Yeah, and I could never have expected that. I mean, even if I didn't have that family history, but I do, you know, growing up, uh, you know, while my mother was working, uh, my auntie who was married to a Holocaust survivor, you know, looked after me all the time. And so I grew up often in the company of an actual Holocaust survivor and I would speak to my auntie about it. I, I knew that I would be called a bigot and hateful and I knew that that wasn't true but the one thing I was never ever expecting was to be called a Nazi sympathizer in any way. No, it's abhorrent and egregious. Maura Deeming has Holocaust survivors in her family and her own political party and its leader accuse her of being a Nazi sympathizer just because a bunch of neo-Nazi nutters turned up at a protest that she happened to be speaking at. That's where all of this started. It's pathetic and it's quite disturbing. And you'd rightly expect your own political party to defend you and stand behind you in a situation like this. After all, you've just invested a whole lot of your life and your time and energy in winning them a seat in the upper house of the Victorian legislature and you're a new member of parliament but you see your party can't stand behind you because your party the liberal party can't stand you need a backbone to stand but i want my viewers to understand at a personal level why this issue is so important to you <coughs> sorry it's just i've experienced what it's like to be vulnerable i was abused as a child uh, I was often targeted in the toilet. Um, I've had men expose themselves to me in public, uh, you know, change rooms and, and toilets. But the difference was I had the right to do something about it and to complain. And that was the biggest difference that I could see in the law was that I ha women and girls have no right to complain anymore when their boundaries are invaded like that. And you're a mum too, aren't you? I have three daughters and I have a son and it's just so enraging that anyone thinks it's acceptable to put my daughters or me or any woman or any girl at such high risk um, where any man can now come into our change rooms and toilets and we aren't allowed to question why they're there. 
This is an issue that doesn't fall along traditional political party lines. It's divided both the right and the left. People should be allowed to express their views whether we agree with them or not. But it was just horrible watching it snowball out of my control. Um, it was very frustrating hearing all these people talk about uh, men in particular telling me whether I should or should not as an almost 40 year old woman go out and uh, speak peacefully about my rights on parliament steps. Mm. Uh, that was very frustrating. It was very degrading and demeaning to have people on uh, Q&A, you know, tell me that I should have stayed home, that I should just go home and stay in bed uh, or that uh, that my views on this issue are not important because they're not genuine. That was said, those two things were said, and uh, especially the one about my views not being genuine, that really, that really hurt. It's not hard to see why this issue has divided the feminist movement. Mr Pizzuto moved to have her expelled from the party again last week, calling a party room meeting for last Friday to vote. The latest motion to expel Ms Deeming cited her as, quote, having engaged in conduct in violation of the Victorian Liberal Party constitution, bringing discredit on the parliamentary party. They're pretty good at doing that all by themselves, really. Moira Deeming then decided to attempt to repair her reputation from the Nazi slur. Heaven, heaven forbid that she should want to do that. And she served an 11-page defamation concerns notice on Mr Pizzuto on Thursday morning, alleging Mr Pizzuto accused her of, quote, being a Nazi sympathiser, unquote. That notice gave Mr Pizzuto 28 days to immediately withdraw last Friday's expulsion motion, publish an apology to her on his website and pay her legal costs. Given that, last Friday's meeting became a vote of confidence, in a sense, in Mr Pizzuto's leadership. And the party room weren't too confident. They voted 19 to 11 to expel Ms Deeming. Here's how Channel 9's Today Show reported it the next morning. Victoria's Liberal Party is looking to put a chaotic few months behind it this morning following the successful vote to expel controversial MP Moira Deeming. Let's head live to Elizabeth Moss. She's in Melbourne for us. Lizzie, good morning. Uh, it might not be the end of the saga just yet, though. No, good morning to you, Clinton. That's because that threat, Miss Deeming's threat of legal action against leader John Pesuto is still looming large. Uh, of course, this issue was all brought to a head after embattled MP Miss Deeming attended a Let Women Speak rally, which was crashed by neo-Nazis. She, of course, later denounced the actions of those neo-Nazis. But nonetheless, this has been bubbling away, which resulted in that vote uh, by the Liberal Party yesterday, 19 votes to 11 to expel Moira Deeming from the party room. Do you think for a minute that I've wanted to go through this process? Nobody could look at that and say that that is a tenable position in any political party. Victorians need a stronger opposition, inclusive, welcoming, engaged, disciplined, professional, focused. That's why I'm doing this. This story makes me quite angry. Mr Pizzuto's reasoning that Ms Deeming was not being a team player and that she was breaking party rules of unity has a very hollow ring to it. Let's get some perspective here. He was the one who failed to support and back her right to express the views of a large percentage of the party base and faithful, if not the little rabble of the parliamentary party. Ms Deeming's defamation action against Mr Pizzuto is set to be filed in the federal court on June 8. 
Meantime, federal Liberal leader Peter Dutton isn't happy with all this mess. He told the ABC he wouldn't rule out federal party intervention in the Victorian state branch and said, I make it very clear to the Victorian division that I want this mess sorted out as quickly as possible. My interest is in getting the matters that are in the press at the moment resolved because it doesn't help our brand. It doesn't reflect on our broader party movements. Unfortunately, it does. And former Prime Minister Tony Abbott said that he was utterly dismayed that a mainstream political party would sack somebody for defending women's rights. I've said before that I don't think the Liberal Party can continue as a party of moderates and conservatives living together under one brand. John Howard's broad church is just way too broad now. The people within the Liberal Party are happy there. They've made their bed being the party of centre-left thinking, and that's fine. That is their right. But conservatives cannot remain inside the party now, and they cannot change it from within. I had hoped for that possibility for a while, but I'm now convinced by those who do say it is impossible. Australia needs a completely new, major conservative classical Liberal Party. An unapologetic, strong, passionate, professionally run, that's the hard part, party, that will speak loudly and proudly for the majority of Australians who do not hold left-wing views. We need a party made up of strong, hard-working people united on a mission to take back this country from the left who are destroying it before our very eyes. A party of career politicians, too scared, too gutless to engage in the culture war, cannot and will not save us from the attacks in that war. A party of people who behave as technocrats and bureaucrats who'd be better in a government department job or playing it safe lost in some fat corporations bureaucracy, simply do not have the metal to lead and inspire our people, our great nation, or any of its states. And a conservative-leaning classical liberal like Peter Dutton, I think sadly has very little chance of ever becoming prime minister because the liberal party of today will simply not permit it. So what is the solution? Well, for starters, the National Party needs to rediscover its independence, especially in Queensland, where it's united with the Libs in an even broader than the broad church. It's way too broad. The Nationals can become a true representative of traditional values of the people, of the land, and of working class conservatives of our outer suburbs, and form the core of a new strong party. The National Party then needs to reach out to all the smaller parties like One Nation and UAP and the Liberal Democrats and try to bring them into the fold under a professionally run large organisation with a strong constitution and set of operating rules. With a leader who could ensure egos are kept in check, radical extremist elements within the parties are controlled, arguments are kept inside the party room and core values are committed to by everyone. Everyone who's a conservative within the Liberal Party should then leave the moderates to what they've created and join this new entity. This is the only way that we will save Australia from a radical socialist far-left Green Party, a left-wing Labor Party that's lost its traditional right faction, and a centre-left Liberal Party that are all propped up by an increasingly leftist mainstream agenda in the media. The time is now, and it must happen, 
or I fear the country is doomed to increasing socialism and long-term mediocrity and poverty. You know, it's been done. People are screaming out for populist centre-right leaders all over the world. Donald Trump is still looking strong, despite years of endless reputation attacks. Italy elected a strong centre-right woman as its Prime Minister recently. Florida and Texas as states are thriving under popular conservative leaders. And Canada, a country that's similar to us, but even more lefty and woke, has a relatively new Conservative Party leader who pulls no punches. And he's five percentage points ahead of Justin Trudeau in the polls. Well, Jacinda Trudeau, as Mark Stein likes to call him. Here's how this man, Pierre Poilivier, deals with the questions from the left-wing Canadian media. The failure of the, the system to not support people who have committed crimes, gone to jail, served their, their sentence, you know, and then they're committing another crime. So is this not a failure of things like social services and support for people who have committed crimes? Are you, seri are you serious? I'm asking you. No, question. I mean, are you serious? Come on, you're telling me. No, excuse me. Let, let me answer your question. Are you honestly saying that it's society's fault if a repeat violent offender commits 60 or 70 offenses? I think that criminal is to blame for his own actions. He is personally responsible. We're not talking about some kid who made one mistake when he was 19. We're talking about people who do 60, 70 violent offenses. Why do those and then they're, be, because they're criminals. But why are they criminals? Because they do crime. And why do they do crime? Because we let them out early on bail. So because they got let out. I think we've solved out. the riddle here. Because they got let out early on bail. That's right. They then commit the crime. That's right. So. That's what, the, that's what all the experts agree is the cause of the crime. So have they stayed in jail the whole time, on, on bail, in, in jail, not on bail, as you say, they would then not commit crimes? Because they'd be in jail, so, so they couldn't they, commit and crimes. And when they get out at the end of their sentence, they're crime-free? Well, they, we, we can't guarantee that, but what we can guarantee is the period when they're behind bars, they will not be able to do crime. Now, that kind of responding to silly little journalists might be shocking to some of you because it's a long time since we in Australia heard a politician speak like that. He's talking about a very, very old concept from way back in the olden days called personal responsibility. It's incredible stuff. Here's how Canada's ABC equivalent, the CBC, reported on Poilivier's ascent to the leadership of the party, the Conservative Party, in September. And I have some results. We have a new he often talks about how support should come from community, not from government. In a free country, smaller government makes room for bigger citizens. That's why I'm running for prime minister to put you back in charge of your life. When Polyev announced he was going to run earlier this year, he said he was doing so to give people the freedom to run their own lives. Freedom from the invisible thief of inflation. Freedom to raise your kids with your values. Freedom to make your own health and vaccine choices. Now that he's won the leadership race, can he win over enough Canadians to take a general election and unseat Trudeau's liberals? Do you think they'll be prime minister? Oh, absolutely. Why? Be 
because there's a hunger out there. there there's a starvation out there to hear exactly what he was proclaiming tonight. He's saying what people want to hear. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation on that country's conservative opposition leader, Pierre Poilievre. There must be someone in this country who can do that. Harvard psychologist and best-selling author Steven Pinker says people dealing with the challenges of climate change need to think more broadly and be realistic about the risks of being too focused on the singular goal of net zero carbon dioxide emissions. Professor Pinker told former Australian Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson's Conversations podcast this past month that the rejection of fossil fuels too quickly will be catastrophic for people in poorer countries. He says a shift to natural gas as a transition fossil fuel and to nuclear power as a reliable form of cleaner energy is also essential. You can't turn off coal and oil today because people would starve and poor people would stay poor and they're, 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 they're going to refuse. They're not going to stay poor. People who can't feed their families are hardly going to be concerned about the environment. And there's an awful, there would be an awful lot of people in that category who could do catastrophic damage. When you realise that the problem is not just eliminating emissions, but eliminating emissions and lifting people out of poverty and not sinking back into poverty, if, if, if the problem is how do we trade those off, how do we achieve both, then it, it changes your focus. The focus is then on, uh, first of all, on developing carbon-free, abundant, um, scalable and affordable sources of energy, which you know, I myself believe that the nuclear is uh, right up there. I mean, together with new forms of storage for the intermittent energy from renewables like solar and wind, which by themselves can't power an economy because they don't run 24-7. Um, the it, the it, innovation that gives us abundant energy that is cheaper than uh, abundant clean energy that's cheaper than dirty energy is really what we should be aiming for because then people doing what's in their own interests namely to capture as much energy as possible as cheaply as possible will also do what's best for humanity and, and for the planet pinker says that may also need to involve some kind of carbon tax to provide an economic incentive to produce less carbon so that uh People pay for the damage they do by burning fossil fuels, and that's just a basic principle of economics. You get less bad stuff if you force people to pay for the bad stuff that they do. Uh, it also accelerates the transition because without any planner having to decide exactly how much energy we should allow here versus there, if there's a tax on carbon based on how much damage it does, then millions of people will make decisions toward the cheapest energy source, which will be tilted away from carbon if there's carbon taxation. And that will accelerate the transition. That's Professor Stephen Pinker speaking with John Anderson. You can see the whole interview on John Anderson's Conversations podcast just by Googling it up. But not everybody thinks that a carbon tax is a good idea, as we well know from all the debate around Australian Labor government's introduction of one in the early 2010s and the removal of it by the Liberals soon after. Here's the problem with introducing a tax to try to shift human behaviour. You get, surprise, unintended consequences. 
This is a good little summary explanation from America's Clear Energy Alliance. When the carbon producers are taxed, those costs will simply be passed on to consumers. And since energy is part of everything we do, it means everything will get more expensive. You liking this idea yet? Wait a minute, the promoters of a carbon tax assure us that the government will return that money to us in a rebate check. That's the dividend part. But that begs the question, why make everything more expensive just so the government can give some of what we spend back to us? Well, they say, this is what we must do to fight climate change. The idea is, if fossil energy costs more, people will use less of it. But that's not entirely true. People who can afford to pay more for energy will mostly keep using it as they always have. But the poorest among us, those who spend the highest percentage of their income on energy, will get hammered. But carbon taxers say the poor will get more money back than the middle and upper classes. Okay, so what we've got here is another wealth redistribution scheme. Of course, anyone who has ever witnessed government in action knows that there is a giant cost to any program bureaucrats administer. And what would American manufacturers do if it suddenly got much more expensive to build things in the U.S.? That's right, some of them would simply relocate to other countries or go out of business because they can't compete with companies outside the U.S. that have less stringent environmental regulations. A study commissioned by the National Association of Manufacturers found that a carbon tax would destroy between four and 20 million American jobs. A carbon tax is one of those things that the more you look at it, the dumber it gets. That video was put together by the pro-fossil fuel group, the Clear Energy Alliance in the US, and it's available on their website in full. In case you missed it like I did, the journalist who first exposed the Twitter files that showed high levels of political interference in the days before Elon Musk took over the platform, gave evidence earlier this year at a congressional hearing in the United States. Matt Taibbi has been a reporter for 30 years, most of the time at Rolling Stone magazine, and he describes himself as someone who grew up a traditional ACLU liberal. That's a center leftist for our Aussie viewers. And he says he has always been a staunch defender of the First Amendment of the US Constitution, which enshrines the right to free speech. I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the IF Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written 10 books, including four New York Times, New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> uh, I'm now the editor of the online magazine Racket on the independent platform Substack. I'm here today because of a series of events that began late last year when I received a note from a source online. It read, are you interested in doing a deep dive into what censorship and manipulation was going on at Twitter? A week later, the first of what became known as the Twitter files reports came out. To say these attracted intense public interest would be an understatement. My computer looked like a Vegas slot machine uh, as the, just the first tweet about the blockage of the Hunter Biden laptop story registered 143 million impressions and 30 million engagements. Taibbi went on to tell the hearing that the original promise of the internet was that it might democratize the exchange of information and ideas globally. That the very existence of the internet was a positive threat to challenge the control of anti-democratic governments everywhere. But sadly, the Twitter files revealed an attack on the free flow of information 
across our world. What we found in the files was a sweeping effort to reverse that promise and use machine learning and other tools to turn the internet into an instrument of censorship and social control. Unfortunately, our own government appears to be playing a lead role. We saw the first hints in communications between Twitter executives before the 2020 election when we read things like flag by DHS or please see attached report from FBI for potential misinformation. This would be attached to an Excel spreadsheet with a long list of names whose accounts were often suspended shortly after. To EB says the list of names were of political activists on both the right and the left too. The people affected include Trump supporters, but also left-leaning sites like Consortium and Truthout, the leftist South American channel Telesur, the Yellow Vest movement. That, in fact, is a key point of the Twitter files, that it's neither a left nor right issue. So, what was the most important and significant finding of the Twitter files? Taibi says he and his fellow journalists learned that Twitter, Facebook, Google and other companies had developed a formal system for taking in moderation requests from all sorts of government agencies like the FBI, the Department of Defence and even the CIA. And there were hundreds more quasi-government agencies and NGOs, that's non-government organisations, like Stanford University, the Global Misinformation Index Group and many others who were also doing the same thing with these so-called moderation requests. A focus of this fast-growing network, as Mike noted, is making lists of people whose opinions, beliefs, associations or sympathies are deemed misinformation, disinformation or malinformation. That last term is just a euphemism for true but inconvenient. Undeniably, the making of such lists is a form of digital McCarthyism. Ordinary Americans are not just being reported to Twitter for deamplification or deplatforming, but to firms like PayPal, digital advertisers like Xander, and crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe. These companies can and do refuse service to law-abiding people and, and businesses whose only crime is falling afoul of a distant, faceless, unaccountable, algorithmic judge. As someone who grew up a traditional ACLU liberal, this mechanism for punishment and deprivation without due process is horrifying. Taibi summed up by saying that it's not possible to instantly arrive at truth, but it is becoming technologically possible to instantly define and enforce a political consensus online, which is a great threat to people of all political persuasions. Well, there have been some pretty wild protests going on in France recently. Unions are upset about a plan to do something sensible. Every developed country in the world right now is dealing with one big problem, an ageing population and how to provide pensions and health care to this very important group. All President Macron has done is to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. The population of France is 66 million people. More than a quarter of them are over 60. 25 years ago, there were about 10 million retirees in France, and today there's 17 million. And in the next de decade, it'll be more than 20 million, around one in three people. So you'd think that raising the retirement age by just two years would be a no-brainer. In Australia, we've put it up to 67. Many other countries have done a similar thing. We'll all have to chip in and work a bit longer to be able to afford to look after the elderly. 
This is good management by a democratic government. Macron is taking the hard, unpopular decision. And like all liberal democracies, when governments make tough, sensible, responsible decisions, we punish them for it. There have been school strikes, garbage strikes, transport strikes, you name it. France's public English language news network, France 24, quoted the country's interior minister as saying the left and far left are taking advantage of the situation to simply create chaos. He's blamed the violence on rioters and the far left, who he accuses of trying to destroy democracy. The far left and the extreme left want chaos and have called for public buildings to be burned and for police and gendarmes to be murdered. Since the protests took hold in January, more than 440 police and gendarmes have been injured, but no official figure has been provided for the number of injured civilians. A lot of this unrest is driven by young left-wing thinking people who feel that they're at a disadvantage because of older people. The great socialist ideology of not working to fix problems but joyously wallowing in them and amplifying your own victimhood is winning out again. The young in France reckon that they can't get their voices heard because whatever they vote for, older people will just outnumber them and win. So they've hit the streets, including this viral sensation on TikTok and Instagram. Well, that is young Mathilde Callard, who's become known as the techno striker. Mathilde is singing pensions, climate, same fight, no retirees on a burning planet, because of course it is. Everything is about climate change in the brains of an inner city young social activist. What a spectacular level of deep analytical thinking there. So what else are the under 30 Parisians doing to fix this? Are they turning out in record numbers to make the change that they want? Nope, they're sitting on their backsides, losing elections and complaining. Remember, voting in almost all democracies except Australia is voluntary. There was a little referendum in Paris recently to ban e-scooters and it won. Older people hate the damn things, but a lot of younger Parisians use them to get around. But the under 35s didn't even show up to vote even with an issue that important to them. Well over a million Parisians were eligible to vote in that referendum. Guess how many did? Only a hundred thousand. And most of them were over 60. The pro-ban vote was 90%. So if we give kids an opportunity to have their say in a peaceful, organized democratic election, rather than a trendy protest action, they won't even bother to turn off their screens and get off their backsides to go out and vote. But they sure know how to complain about the result afterwards when they don't get their way. And that is all that we have time for this week. We'll catch you next Friday for The Other Side Australia. And of course, don't forget on Tuesday night, remember our Other Side Interviews show streaming at 6pm on ADH TV and available on demand at any time thereafter as always. Now, if you like the show, 
Remember our saying, don't just like it, share it. The independent media really needs your active support to keep on doing what we're doing. So have a great week and we'll see you soon.